It's UAP. Welcome to the second episode of Let's Talk Synth Seriously. In this podcast, you'll get detailed interviews with your favorite artists from several synth-driven genres such as synthwave, retrowave, synthpop and related styles. As for today, it's drum and bass. We're not talking much about 80s, 90s pop culture, but we're talking gear, studio equipment, tips and tricks for producers, and also about developments in the scene. So if you're a synth music producer yourself, or you're a dedicated fan of the featured artist, you don't want to miss this for sure. Today we'll be going to get some seriously valuable information by a legend of the drum and bass movement, Mr. Gary J. Robinson of The Death Beats. Did you ask yourself how to best contact a label in a really professional way? And if this is still the right thing to do in times of self-publishing, then this episode's for you. Have you asked yourself why you're getting all that not exactly feel-good feedback from submit-up curators or similar services? And if those services are really a good idea to submit your music to, then this is the episode for you. Have you asked yourself if it's maybe a good idea to get a foot in the door in regard to sync licensing and hey what the heck is sync licensing so then this episode is for you so as you can see there's a lot of interesting stuff today to look forward to but i want to start with something completely different dear synth music artists or fans out there listening right now here's an announcement for you in december I'll be doing a best of Synth 22 episode and I want to encourage you to send me short recorded messages in which you just say like Hi, I'm Mrs. or Mr. X or whatever your name is, probably not X. And my favorite synth music song in 22 was because of and what I really liked about it was So grab your cell phone now and a voice recording app or preferably enter your studio and direct message me on Facebook or Instagram. Instagram to send me a short voice message with your favorite music wish for the upcoming Best of Synth 22 show. So, thank you very much. And now, drum roll, please, or maybe not, because drum rolls are not exactly what we need for drum and bass, right? Here's some music from today's guest, Mr. Gary J. Robinson, also known as The Death Beats, here also featuring Little Panda with Monsters. Oh, 
Now let's come to the very core of this episode, the interview with Gary J. Robinson of The Death Beats. When I started my podcast, I wanted to not only provide serious information for anybody interested in synth-driven music, but I also wanted to make it a great sounding listening experience. This time, I catched up Gary in Mexico and the connection we were talking on was not always the best. So today I'm sorry to say that some background noises etc. were just unavoidable. You'll even hear me rambling as a telephone voice on Gary's end. <laughs> so that's just as it is in this episode. I wasn't able to cut any better. I hope you still enjoy the talk anyway. Just just because it was so interesting and rich in facets and information. So let the talk begin. I'm super glad to have you, Gary, that we are going to have the possibility today to talk a lot about the electronic music of the 90s and 2000s, which is something I have the feeling is a bit overlooked these days. And uh, I'm also very glad I learned a bit about the British scene of these times. And for sure, I also learn why you live in Mexico today, of all places. But let's begin with uh, your early career. And you talked uh, to me uh, before and uh, told me that you have started in the Amiga scene in the 1990s. For all late-born listeners out there, Amiga was a computer made by Commodore. And it was a successor of the C64. The legendary one. And um, I remember that time very well. I started on Atari ST. And I remember there was some fight going on between the Amiga and the Atari camp. So how did you end up being on the wrong side, Gary? You're right. There were indeed two camps. And I wasn't aware of that until the drum and bass and jungle scene started to properly utilize the uh, Amiga and Atari ST. But in the early days, I think I got onto the Amiga simply because friends of mine had the Amiga. Once I saw some of the games, especially the early Bitmap Brothers games, where they had soundtracks by composers like Richard Joseph, I, I fell in love with the music and I wanted to know how the hell was the music made. I was also interested in, in the graphics, but the music really spoke to me. And um, I think it was my parents and my grandparents who pushed me to, uh, me and my brother, to not get a Sega Mega Drive for Christmas, but to get an Amiga <laughs> and start learning. And so we took their advice because, you know, previously I had a Sega Master System as a kid who didn't have a Sega Master System. And I, again, I had the same fixation with the music and what must have gone into the production of the game and the design. And I think that's what sparked my interest pre-Amiga. And that's why I almost ended up with a Mega Drive and not an Amiga. And if that had happened, we wouldn't be here. <laughs> <laughs> the way it worked out was that I, like most kids, I delved into the Amiga scene. I was buying all the magazines magazines, all the books. And uh, one month they gave away a, a program called ProTracker. And uh, you might have used the tracker programs before. They seem to be coming back into fashion. And they are four channels of mono 8-bit audio. And um, it gave you the, the power on the Amiga to create whole tunes. So if you were into like the early rave scene, like I was, and you were listening to the Prodigy or, you know, you could create stuff that was very similar to what they were doing, albeit in lo-fi. And um, what happened to me was I got involved in an underground scene um, known as the demo scene in Europe. And it was uh, lots of crews around Europe organizing into uh, like creative teams. And they would make these things called demos, which were distributed through the mail. And they were essentially presentations of 
creative programming mixed with uh, graphic design and music. So naturally, I became one of the musicians on the scene. And um, I did that for a, a few years while I was at school, much to the confusion of friends who just couldn't understand it. <laughs> they just couldn't understand why someone would want to be at home making music. Uh, what was involved in that? Did I have a studio? Did I have a huge mixing console? Uh, whereas some of my friends who were into the rave scene really understood it and would say, you've got to listen to what this guy's doing. This is incredible. But for me, it was it was now the norm. But I think as I became more and more into acts in the rave scene, and I have to say, especially the prodigy, because in those days, who didn't catch part of the energy from the prodigy? You know, I, I wanted to start building a studio and making music that I could give to, to labels. And so um, that's when I started getting into synths. And of course, being a, a prodigy fan at that time, Liam had very good taste in, in analog synths. So the first thing I did was go out and buy a secondhand Roland JX 3P, which I paid for by uh, sweeping the stairs at the British Standards Institute for about two years. <laughs> that was time well spent. And uh, yeah, I followed that up with a, a, a Yamaha RX-7 drum machine, which originally I wanted a 909 because who doesn't want a 909? But it turned out I couldn't find one. <laughs> so the next best thing was the Yamaha DX, uh, sorry, RX-7, RX-7 drum machine. I think I said DX-7. And that had some good sounds in it. I think it has kind of a corny reputation, but it's quite a beast if you tweak some of the sounds. So that was my first um, sort of foray into setting up a studio at home and making music for release. By that time, there was no turning back from the Amiga camp. I started to get to know drum and bass producers and I knew that some of them had, um, you know, the Atari ST and I didn't see any logic in switching. <laughs> I know you're not so much into the jungle drum and bass scene as I am since I know I started out there, but back as, as jungle became big, um, DJs, Mickey Finn and Aphrodite, they had a track under the name of Urban Shakedown and um, it was completely made with an Amiga, just with two Amigas connected together to give eight channels. You know, that just blew me away. So I used to start taking my Amiga tracks down to um, a cutting house in Hackney in London because I knew this is where all the, the DJs went. So they would cut their music on a one-off dub plate in the week and then they would play it out the weekend. So I would go there and, you know, book to cut dub plates of my Amiga tracks so I could meet, you know, like the other DJs and producers and get them to hear the tracks and get feedback. And uh, that was a, an invaluable time because, you, you you know, you learn so much about the subtleties of how to put together a track, not so much the production, but the, the writing and, you know, to create the impact and the arrangements that the DJs needed. And uh, those, were, those were good times. Um, and that led to me starting my first label, which um, I think I launched it in 1999. And it was a drum and bass label called New Vision Recordings and um, I had a lot of help with that label from a few famous people that I'd met in the club scene because uh, and this this is advice for any producers who, who want to make it if you if you want to make it in a I'm not saying I've made it but if you want to get anywhere in a specific genre I think you know you've really got to get out there into the clubs and meet people and by which I don't mean go out with your friends and get drunk I mean you've got to go out there willing to you know try and get your way into the with the DJs and the MCs and, and make contacts and, and give tunes up immerse yourself in what is going on 
because things change, you know, on a weekly basis in all genres of dance music, maybe not synthwave. Well, maybe I can place a question here because I have the impression that you um, answer like the first 20 questions I have on my sheet right away. <laughs> But um, it's totally interesting. And I really like the flow you have in your um, uh, storytelling from the olden days. But uh, what I don't understand, you told me you've worked with uh, ProTracker. And uh, I remember that around, I think, 92, there was also the first versions of Cubase on the market, which was the first real DAW. So was this DAW movement nothing that really um, affected the drum and bass scene back then? Or was it also incorporated in somehow? I'll tell you what happened. There was a missing saga in between ProTracker and the uh, evolution of DAWs. And, and that was called Optimed. <laughs> And this was an advanced tracker that started out on the Amiga and then eventually went to the PC. And what Optimed did was it expanded to, um, well, on the PC, you then had 64 channels of 16-bit audio, uh, but you also had the same effects and programming. And so there was a culture of producers who left the Amiga so that they could have the same workflow and simply work on PCs in the same quality without going to VSTs. There was definitely a period where people saw VSTs and plugins as something that should just be pirated on the internet and not paid for. And I think this is because a lot of producers, especially in the drum and bass scene, were happy to pay £35 for Optimed and then just fill it with samples. There was no cost involved, you see. You had that old school workflow which gave you a certain sound and a certain way of working. And that was a missing uh, sort of episode in history, which stopped a lot of people from jumping straight from Pro Tracker and Noise Tracker to Cubase and whatever else was, was available. That's why we're talking here. And I think that's the really interesting details, which uh, is probably also interesting for some people who are listening right now. You know, I'm on pretty thin ice in this interview because besides going crazy on the dance floor, I don't know a lot about uh, drum and bass or jungle. I also, I always found it absolutely fascinating because it sounded so different, especially, of course, the crazy drum beats. Do you remember some gear that was central to the early movement, like any drum machines or probably analog? synth which were influential to the development of the style or was it really also the Amiga as a sound source? Well I tell you what that one piece of equipment that became standard in, in terms of the sample side of things before we get onto the synth was the uh, the Akai is, is it the S1100 or was it the 1200 the 16-bit version that was always at the core of most drum and bass producers sound but every drum and bass producer had to have at least one analog synth and for me it was the JX3P See, my first big track in drum and bass was a track called Spine Chiller, which was very dark, but very soulful and catchy. And it was mostly analog. It was made entirely with one sound from the Roland MC303 and then about four or five sounds from the JX3P. And I would use MIDI codes in Optimed to switch between the sounds because you needed to program so the JX3P would say, oh, okay, next section, um, reverse bass or, you know, Hoover sound. And the track was very, very dark analog. It was almost like what you might call um, dark wave or cyber wave today. And I was very lucky with that with that track because at the time I was under the wing of Goldie who obviously uh, was the, the head of the Metalheads record label and he was heading up the new drum and bass movement we had the same manager he moved to my town Hemel Hempstead just outside of London and so 
occasionally I was able to go to his house in the evening if he was free and one night I went around with a uh, like a test pressing of this track Spine Chiller and I thought he's going to hate it and I was told by my uh, label manager who was the co-financer and publisher said this isn't going to sell it's the wrong time of year it's too heavy it's too dark a week later I'm getting all these calls saying that Goldie has taken your track on tour and it's blowing up it's on the radio and I wasn't listening to the radio it was on Radio 1 after that there was quite a movement of sort of dark analogue sounds in drum and bass so I think Spine Chiller definitely touched a nerve alright so let's do some time travel to the year of 1999 and let's listen to Spine Chiller by Rare Form which was the project that Gary had back then
But eventually what happened in drum and bass was I think the main synth became the Access Virus, which were used by producers such as Ed Rush and Optical. And I think a lot of producers in that scene um, probably borrowed the, the virus from them because they were working in their studio. So, I mean, the, the virus was actually digital. And I, I think it was in that period, as the sort of late zeros came in, that there was a shift towards digital for drum and bass and, and a move away from analogue. I was always criticised, well, I was often criticised in the early days of my label for trying to add what you might call synthwave elements to drum and bass. And I thought, you know, something's going to happen with this one day, even if the DJs aren't ready for it now or the, or the listeners aren't ready for it. And of course, now in drum and bass, you do have quite a cohesion of, of synth pop, synth wave and electro elements. And... Um, you're probably going to ask me about my new label, Death Ray Music, which I launched this year. Uh, I'm getting ahead on myself here. I'm getting ahead on your questions. Apologize for that. That was also the time when um, analog synths were really cheap. I mean, there are stories from music retailers where uh, customers came and said, oh, could you please throw away my uh, Oberheim? And um, I want to have, a, I don't know, some digital keyboard, which was just in fashion at that time. Ever happened something to you like that? Well, first of all, I, I, that's horrible to hear that people are throwing away analog gear. But I did manage to get two analog synths very, very cheap, simply because they were unwanted. There used to be a great music store in, in Watford, where I lived. But yeah, I managed to get a mint condition Korg EX800 module. And uh, I said to them, well, how much, how much do you want for it? They just looked at it like it was a piece of trash. And the guy said, 20 pounds. This was in the year, I think, 2001. So I, I tell you, the sound of the Korg EX800 is just unreal. It's when you hear an analog synth like that next to a digital synth, it's, it's just like listening to the good old JX3P. You know, they're, all, they're alive. There is so much depth and movement in, in the most basic of sounds. You know, you can almost grab it in the air as opposed to digital. But how couldn't people realize that back then? I mean, it's it's a little strange. I also remember the 90s in Germany, we were flooded by all those Italian strange synths like the Bit01 and uh, like Zeal and uh, like Elka, of course, Syntex and so on. I mean, the Syntex was never really widespread, but I remember to have uh, quite a few of Italian synths, which are also um, extremely expensive and sought for these days because they are so rare and they are exotic and whatever and uh, how couldn't people realize that these are great sounding instruments i've often wondered that myself this is how the original tb303 from the detroit acid movement was found in a yeah, second hand right. store in a flea market uh, people just discarded things they just they just didn't see the future I, i also brought myself in those days a mint condition um alpha juno 2 the larger version of the alpha juno and um i think it was only 200 pounds including the postage and the guy on ebay just wanted to get rid of it he said he had a studio he was producing pop stuff for a big label and he said I've got, I've got to clear out all the junk so um you know that was that and it's in it's never broken down it's in full working order i've had problems with some of my other synths i have a, a jp8000 that i've had for 20 years my jx3p is currently um in the hands of uh, a youtuber called the music tech guy uk who's uh refurbishing it for me because unfortunately the, the battery for the memory has gone but the, the roland juno 2 is uh is rock solid I've I've left it at home in the UK, but it's um, it's it gets powered up every now and again, and it's in perfect working order. And it was just dis discarded, 200 quid, 
What a bargain. <laughs> <laughs> so let's get back to your biography for a minute. Um, when we are, when we talk about your time with Goldie and the, the Metalheads label, of course, I have to ask, have you also met Björk? I mean, Björk was dating Goldie back then. And is she even more fantastic than we all think she is? Unfortunately, I never met her. Ah, what a pity. I know. That's a, that's a massive come down on the back of that question. <laughs> That's the actual reason I'm doing that interview with you. <laughs> yeah, it's cancelled. Sorry, mate. I'm out of here. <laughs> Every weekend in London, around that time when Goldie was with Bjork, we used to have a club night called the Metalhead Sunday Sessions, which was a Sunday drum and bass night. And so lots of people like Noel Gallagher and David Bowie would come down and you would see them just walking around in the club, which was like a small club. But Bjork was one of the only people that I never saw. But um, yeah, hanging around with Goldie, you would you would meet all kinds of strange people. I went to a screening of a documentary with him once in Soho Square, and it was a documentary about his childhood. And we went there with uh, the actors Billy Zane and Sean Pertwee, and the, the movie Titanic had just come out. And so we're just on our way to this documentary with, with Billy Zane. It's, it was just the most bizarre thing. But those were the sort of things that would happen when you were, you know, hanging around with Goldie. He had a, an energy and everyone was attractive to it he uh, gave me a lot of help with my first label and if it wasn't for him it, it wouldn't have happened so next up would be your own project called poison flow is that right poison flow came right after new vision recordings i think what it was for me is that i was you know i'd been in the drum and bass scene for a while but i'd wanted to do something that was similar to the prodigy something that could be played live with energy um, because I'd been doing a live show with my first label. Um, and in those days, I was under the artist name Rare Form. So if you looked up my old D&B tunes, it would be Rare Form. And it was very hard to do live PAs or live gigs at drum and bass nights. We could get some bookings, but the energy wasn't right because you'd have a DJ, you know, tearing out the music. And then the band would come on and the engineer would turn down the music because he would fear for levels of different keyboards and stuff. And so I thought, well, I, you know, I want to go back and do something that is a real band. And we have guitars and we have bass, drums, keyboards, vocals, turntables. And I started writing an album with a friend of mine, um, Johnny Vaughan, who collaborated with me on some of the tracks on New Vision. We ended up one day in a seminar for uh, SMS in the music business, which was run by... Um, a company owned by a friend of mine who was specializing in early SMS for promotion of music. It must have been around 2001. I see. And what I didn't know was that I was expected to speak because I'd had some freebies. And I also didn't know that I was sitting there amongst uh, like the guys from XL Recordings and One Little Indian BMG, and I was expected to get up with all these big dogs and tell them how great the service was. So that was quite nerve-wracking. But in the audience was uh, some guys from Kicking Records, which was the legendary rave label, basically. And they also ran a couple of other companies like called Hard Leaders and, and such for, for drum and bass. We got talking with them, and they took us for drinks afterwards. And in that... In that session of drinks, I sold them the Poison Flow album and they sold the unwritten album to BMG Publishing and all, Lock, Stock and Barrel. I was blown away by that. Within two weeks, I had a recording contract. <laughs> so just had to write the album. One of Gary's other projects in the 2000s was a band called Poison Flow. So let's listen to that in the form of their song Fear of Mind Giving Way. And that should I fight? Should I do anything? made up my mind and this baby you better kill me before 
But um, is it right that you bought the rights back? I mean, I found the album on Spotify and it says Urban Sickness, which is one of your later labels, right? Yeah, we so we signed the rights over to Kickin um, and then they were licensed to BMG. And we spent a couple of years developing it with a producer. And in that time, we were doing mini tours and gigs and building up a following. And what happened was, unfortunately, the guy that ran Kicking Records, Peter Harris, he was a Jamaican guy and he was quite a character. If you've ever seen the movie Notting Hill, it's Peter Harris's house yeah. that they use in Notting Hill. When you see Reese Siffens hiding away with, um, what's the actress? I can't remember her name. That that famous person, whoever she was, with uh, Hugh Grant, I think, that was Richard Harris's house. So he was quite a character and the office was around the corner. Um, but he passed away. Things stopped working out. Nobody knew where the money was going or where it was coming from. Um, at the time, we started working um, with a guy who was part of Prodigy's management team. And he was trying to help us out. He was a lawyer. Um, And unfortunately, it, it, it just we just couldn't go forward with Poison Flow without Richard Harris. Um, his death left a, quite a, um, a, uh, a chasm. And, and so the rights reverted back to me. And um, But around that time, I was getting into film and TV licensing. So we were able to ship out Poison Flow for um, plenty of uh, MTV placements on their reality shows. <laughs> and so the album spent quite a few years doing the rounds on TV and it did all right. But it's just a shame that it was never released as an album because um, as a band and a band with synths up front and the synths were live, I was playing the synths live, both the JX3P, Roland MC303 and um, JX3P as well. Uh, sorry, JP8000. It was very well received and the gigs were incredible. Some of my best sort of live experiences. And I thought when this goes out as an album, it's going to be amazing. But, you know, the music business has a way of doing its own thing and putting you in your place. It didn't work out. So you move on to the next project. That's the way I see it. But it seems it has not been some kind of a dead-end street for you, but also for drum and bass in general, which just lost drive, I would say, in the 2000s. From an outsider perspective and from a German perspective, it just looked as if the whole genre almost... Um, almost stopped at some point uh, record labels declining artists doing other genres how do you remember that time yeah i remember that time as being quite dry as opposed to now it's very vibrant at the moment and, and drama bass is going over into the mainstream without losing credibility but you know i would have friends who are producers good producers just churning out the same thing over and over again i would say oh you know what do you think of this track and i'd say well it's got the same beat It's a different pattern. It's got the same bass sound and there's only one of them. <laughs> just thought, you know, it's, it is getting a bit dry. I can see why some people have a problem with drum and bass music. And um, I think that is why we did Poison Flow at the time because it was a way to throw in retro synths, rock music, hip hop, all into one thing with the drum and bass energy and just put it on stage, you know, and just bland in people's faces um, because that for me was missing from drum and bass which became for a good 10 years the same old thing over and over again and um, I certainly fell out of the club scene in that time as well because it just was it just didn't appeal to me for a while because the you know the magic of the sort of mid to late 90s Uh, where the music was more DIY and it was it was raw and it was more experimental. You know, the glory days of people like Goldie and Doc Scott and Ed Rush and Optical, those days were gone. And I think um, I think the rise of the DAW and people becoming obsessed with plugins and loudness and limiting also killed 
D&B for a little while because there was a loudness war in music production at the time but in drum and bass the loudness war was incredible you had people saying um, sorry you had labels saying to artists we want the songs to be three minutes long so they can be as loud as possible on the vinyl and so a lot of drum and bass records at the time were just unnecessarily loud and squashed and without dynamic and there was just an unpleasant tone to the sound for quite some time um, well, I've just talked to a friend of mine and uh, she said that um, she has the impression that people are nowadays only putting out the most polished tracks on Spotify so that it's almost sanitized what you get on Spotify. I wouldn't say that Spotify is really the reason for that, but maybe the submit hub culture where you send out your music to curators for playlists and those curators, they want the most perfect productions they can have. Well, Rena, as you know, I've got a lot to say about Submit Hub. <laughs> I, if I can just go off track a little bit, I, I know that you recently submitted your track to Lita, which is an epic synthwave anthem, and somebody told you it wasn't synthwave. What on earth is the matter with that person? So I asked myself. <laughs> I've almost answered your question by summing up Submit Hub with that one statement. Yeah, I think your friend is right. Pro- production has been sanitized. Um, the level of production in in all genres of dance music at the moment has to be so incredible you, you've you've literally got djs and and labels complaining about the most minor thing connected to a, a single drum hit that will stop them from accepting the track or approving the track and as far as submit hub goes there is a whole world of curators each that seem to have their own um agendas And they're looking for things, in my opinion, and in my experience of of trying that site. Uh, How can I put this? You can't please them. I just don't think they can please because they're always looking for something. They have a never ending list of attributes that they want connected to your production and writing. Um, and, and if they, if you don't meet that magic requirement, that's not possible in the first place, then they're going to reject you. Now, obviously there's some really good people on submit hub, like uh, our friend, Brian Hazard, for example, and rogue VHS, two really good guys. Absolutely. I mean, I've got a lot of uh, time for Brian. Can't thank him enough for his, uh, playlist support over the years Mm -hmm. there's some some people on submit hub whose motives i would question and while i don't want to accuse them of anything i i kind of i can't help but get the picture that they're just on there so that they can say look at me i'm a gatekeeper send me your music so i can criticize it but i've not made any music for myself but i'm going to criticize you and that's how it seems to be for the most part and what i would say to people is if you're working in a in a genre of music where there are DJs connect with those DJs because they will be the ones to give you help and honest advice and eventually support your music uh, probably in a way that's more beneficial than somebody on sound uh, submit hub can do they might put you in a big playlist but if you're genuinely making relationships with movers and shakers in different parts of the electronic music world who are playing tracks on podcasts and clubs and festivals there's a lot more they can do for you and you're able to establish you know long-term working relationships with them so that you have an output a platform for your music that doesn't rely on you paying submit hub so that somebody can uh, unnecessarily criticize your music and send you off in the wrong direction with bad advice 
because let's face it some of the advice that they give people and I've read a lot of advice that, that's been sent to friends even Brian Hazard and that the, the comments they leave are just insane <laughs> they really are <laughs> I mean, sometimes they're always the same. I mean, it's uh, pre-written comments that they just have for, for copy and paste, I think. Yeah. But what I should say, with a bit of a caveat on that, is um, every artist or producer who wants to move forward and wants to keep moving forward and improving should submit themselves to A&R and to feedback, and you should seek it from people. I've spent my whole life working with people at every layer of the pyramid, and a and taking on their advice and whether they rip me apart or whether they give me some small comments to improve things I, I take it all on but it's the trick is to know if that person is valid right and I'm sorry to say that submit hub curators are not really going to give you valid A&R or, or um, critique it's not going to be of much use it's just going to spin your head and this is another reason why I say try and connect with DJs Who are, who are playing the music that you're making within those genres because once you start connecting with those people you'll find that they're happy to give you real world advice because they care you know they, they want good music to play to make themselves look good so they want you to do well so that you have a big tune to give them and you know this might not be relevant to synthwave exactly but um, I know there are synthwave radio shows and um, I'm sure For the more elite radio shows, it's got to be the same as a, a club DJ who's playing a future bass or a dubstep hit. You know, they're willing to connect with the artists and they're willing to help them and give them advice. I'm, I'm sure it must be that way. Very interesting part of, of the interview, I think. I think there will be many people out there who will dig that, what you say, because, of course, everybody has his experiences with uh, SubmitHub and other services uh, that way. And it's pretty cool to um, listen to a pro who says they're also cooking with water, you know. <laughs> Oh, and never call yourself a pro. You're, you're never a pro. None of us are pro. <laughs> Let's come back to your own biography. Today you publish your music under the moniker of the Death Beats. You founded a new label again called Death Ray Music. So to someone who's new to the Death Beats and Death Ray, how would you describe it? What is it all about? Well, the Death Beats started in the wake of Poison Flow. Myself and my uh, collaborator at the time, Johnny Vaughan, to be honest, we were quite tired from Poison Flow <laughs> because it was quite an ordeal towards the end even though we had a good time and we said well look we want to keep making tunes why don't we start up a small project and um, we can ship it around um, at the time we were being managed by Trenton Harrison who um, famously managed um, Goldie Adam F Public Enemy, De La Soul, Technotronic. So we were in that camp and um, and we said to Trenton, look, we're going to start making these tracks just under a silly name and they're for sale. So just take them around all the labels that you work with, Def Jam, BMG, Warners, etc., and try and sell some tracks. Then dubstep happened. And so we thought, well, we're kind of making tracks that sound like dubstep. And so we started experimenting in making dubstep. We needed a silly name, the name, the death beats. And, I, and um, it's completely stupid, but it was a term that stuck. And so we stuck with that name. I think many, many of the catchy names within dance music are just silly, meaningless names that stick. That's just the way it is. I don't think it's the same in synth wave, but it's definitely the case for dubstep and drum and bass. Anyway, um, 
what happened was we eventually went on to create a track called Moments of Darkness. And at this time, I was collaborating with uh, Dr. P and Swanee, who were the guys behind Circus Records, which is undoubtedly the biggest dubstep label on the planet part of Atlantic Records now and I guess it's one of the biggest electronic labels on the planet they were blowing up going global and uh, yeah they helped us with a lot of DJ support for the early Death Beach tracks which were purely dubstep and they did some some D&B collabs as well at the time so that was that was quite quite a good era and that's what led me to I'm trying to think about the timeline here I'm getting myself confused with so many labels that I've launched over the years and so many different names but I think this is the period where I launched the label Urban Sickness Audio and that's the label where I started releasing the early Death Beach tracks and the collabs with Dr. P and Swanee we had a lot of success with that the label in the early years and we were lucky enough to get a lot of radio support in the UK um, from people like DJ Hype Kenny Ken on Radio 1 and Kiss FM and um, our first dubstep track as the Death Beats um, Moments of Darkness which featured a vocal by a UK rocker called Phil Sarchi good old guy that got pick, it got picked up for a TV show um, Beauty and the Beast on the CW um, which uh, you probably haven't seen if you're not a 14 year old American girl <laughs> <laughs> it was it was a good placement because they ran the track for about a minute and the track blew up quite well. So the, for the first few sort of years, the Death Beats was very focused on um, on dubstep. But again, you know, it still had the, the vintage synth element in most of the tracks. Um, but at this time, I didn't, I, you know, I, I didn't know what synthwave was. I guess this is around 2010, 2011. I, I certainly didn't know the name synthwave. But around that time, um, Johnny Vaughan, my collaborator, wanted to step back. So I took the reins of the Death Beats, by which time I decided to keep the name because, you know, we're building the profile and I didn't want to start from scratch again. Let's talk a bit about your Death Ray label. I mean, is the label open also to other artists or do you plan to exclusively release your own music with it? I mean, it's very fresh. I think there's only one or two releases so far, right? Yeah, there is. Uh, there's two releases so far. The next release comes out late November, already scheduled. The concept for the label is drum and bass with a synthwave theme versus classic synthwave with a cinematic edge. So every every release is also a collaboration with a, a singer-songwriter. So for the first release, I worked with Little Panda, And that was a track called Monsters, which we wrote about three years ago, and I finally got around to finishing. And the second release was with the folk band Harbottle and Jonas, who are a very popular folk band in the UK. Yeah, cool combination. I think the combination between synth and folk is so rewarding. And uh, I also have my experiences with it. And I don't know why, but these seem to be genres that just fit together so cool. I couldn't agree more. I did several versions of the track that they sent me and I have a lot more vocals that I've not even used, different songs and everything just fits so well with uh, with nice you know, synth layers and I think the track with Harbottle and Jonas was just one of those times where I was working on it and I just thought everything sounds amazing, everything just worked out Even the artwork was just great, you know, because they have a great image. Um, and I like working with artists like that. The Death Beats today have also established themselves as a great force in Synthwave. And we are going to listen to a track which is called You Are Mine, the Synthwave mix featuring UK folk duo Harbottle and Jonas. And of course, Gary J. Robinson, aka The Death Beats. Mm -hmm. 
was I going to say? Yeah. So the next the next release on Death Ray features uh, a vocalist from the US called Charlie Young, and that is I would say Blade Runner twenty forty nine meets drum and bass meets synthwave. <laughs> ah, great! I'm already getting some interesting DJ responses. Um, strangely enough, one drum and bass DJ uh, left me a, a, a note on the promo campaign, and he said the synthwave mix is an unbelievable cohesion of drum and bass and synthwave. And I was blown away because I thought I was worried that this t- this particular song was maybe a bit too poppy. It was a little bit upbeat compared to the DMB mix and compared to the previous releases on Death Ray. But it's getting a good a good response. Fingers crossed for November for the uh, November release. A cool idea you had is uh, that you combine different mixes of the same song on one and the same release, like a synthwave mix, a drum and bass mix, sometimes a remix, sometimes with vocals, without vocals. What's the general idea behind that tactic? I, I think you're one of very few artists who um, are doing this. Well, one of the concepts that I think you're um, hitting on there is the fact that I was interested in writing drum and bass to the point where you could take the finished project file and turn it into a second mix at the same tempo with the slow 4-4 beat. So you've got a 4-4 beat at 175 BPM. And I think that gives for a really nice driving sound. And not many people are doing that. And I think that could be its own genre. And I'm, I had a hard time initially getting people to sort of accept that in terms of playlisting wise, um, because they think it's too EDM or it's, you know, it's not the same as regular synthwave. But I, uh, I'm going to keep on with that sound because I truly believe in it. And something I'm going to be doing with the next batch of releases is for the synthwave mix I'm going to be letting the drum and bass sound bleed into it a little bit more to freak people out but I want to I want to draw them in with the intro which is pure synthwave so at that point they can't complain but they, they're just going to get slapped as the track goes on by, by little irritations of drum and bass and they're going to have to say you know what this is going on my playlist I like it it's not traditional somebody needs to cut through the noise in the synthwave scene so that's what I'm going to start doing yeah sounds fantastic <laughs> I really dig that. And I mean, you don't derive from the synthwave scene yourself, but you've got a foot in the door now. And uh, I've seen that your uh, top streamed um, Spotify tracks are, there are at least two synthwave mixes. So how do you see on the synthwave scene from your angle? It uh, can be quite conservative. It can be very conservative. I've had some good support from some good playlisters who I uh, respect a lot, um, including Zenon and Brian Hazard and yourself and I'm, I'm grateful for that support but a lot of people um, when I first started out doing Synthwave I, I found that some of the big names would contact me there was a guy who had a label Christ I'm forgetting the names Iron something or other there was a guy with a label called Iron something and he was considered one of the top guys and he would write me and say look you know I've, I've come across your stuff it's kind of interesting really good synth elements but it's way too EDM it's way too drum and bass and I, I'm you know And, and this one guy said to me once, you know what, I'll, I'll do you a favor. I'm going to add you to my playlist for one day. And it was a huge fat playlist. <laughs> After that, don't send me any more music like this. Just don't bother me with it. I'm not going to help you, but I'll do this one thing. And I thought, wow, that's that's really narrow-minded. And so I got my one-day playlist feature and uh, never heard from the guy again. <laughs> I never sent him anything. Okay. <laughs> I have to remember who that was. It's terrible of me to forget. 
but it was I, I do remember he was quite up and he had a label well we don't have to talk about names so much I mean <laughs> but we were jumping quite a bit I, I mean we are, were leaving you when we had uh, talked about your label and I think that is something interesting to catch up to again because um, some of our listeners I would say want to approach a label with their music to ask if the label would be interested in releasing their music so what will be to be what will be the best way to do that there are many possibilities today you can go to um, some service like submit hub or um, other services uh, which are promising that they are good for contacting labels or you can write to labels directly so what would be the best way to contact the label what would you say my advice would be initially to do it yourself but to have your game plan straightened out let's say for example you make synthwave or you make dubstep my advice would be to make sure that you are definitely plugged in to all of the labels within that scene so you really know the sound that's happening before you approach labels because so many people i can give them advice i can give them contacts but if they're sending the wrong kind of music it's not going to get anywhere it's not going to get a response so i think I think the big thing that people overlook is an understanding of what the labels are looking for that they want to approach. And many labels today, whether it's a label like Monster Cat in the EDM scene or if it's New Retro Wave in the Synthwave scene, they have a sound. You could almost say that the entire catalogue is made by one artist because the sound is cohesive, which is not a bad thing. So I, the first thing I would say is know who you're sending your music to. And the second thing I would say is that you need at least and, and this is an old school rule which Goldie taught me and it still stands today you need five tunes the four legs of the table plus the, the tabletop because you've got to show them that you can at least write five tunes and with some of the big labels there is quite a difference between sending them two tracks and five tracks at two tracks for all they know you know you could have had them done by a producer which means you've got no workflow no potential to do more tunes quicker it doesn't give them an idea of your sound with two tunes but the five finished consistent tunes shows them what you can do and so if you're hitting the right labels with the right sound and you're contacting them in the right way without being spammy and that they can see that your online presence is professional and that you have a an image and a vision of where you're going and that your social media isn't full of pictures of you with your friends drunk or, you know silly <laughs> they can see that if you take yourself seriously then they'll take you seriously if you've got the tunes to back it up that would be my advice of working with labels over the years very valuable i think um what i mean many people ask themselves what can a label do for me these days i mean there are many ways of um, distributing your music yourself with uh, services like distrokit or lander or other uh, distributors what is the benefit of having a label right the, the main benefit of having a label is the fact that that label let's say we're talking uh, new retro wave or viper recordings in, in drum and bass those labels are run by people that create you turn that label into a platform so they put the same amount of work into that label as you put into your tunes so that your tunes are taken to a massive audience playlists editorial playlists youtube playlists djs licensing etc etc so they're they're providing you the infrastructure and the platform to push the music as far as it can go and this is a conundrum i have you know maybe you know i'm running my own label right now i have control there's only so far i can take it you know at this i have 
thought to myself at this point in my life, should I now be contacting and working with other labels again? Maybe I will in the future, but for now, you know, I'm establishing Death Ray. But yeah, that would be the reason to uh, to work with a label if you're an up and coming artist. You've got to remember they're putting the same amount of work into providing a platform and a brand as you are into your music. And the fact is that today, most people, especially within electronic music, they don't follow the artists, they follow the, the record label, and they follow the playlist, and that's what it comes down to. Okay, um, I wanted to talk about an aspect which is not on the mind of too many people. It's quite cryptic to many. Um, you're an expert in sync licensing, for example. What is sync licensing and what can it do for artists? Well, sync licensing is the business of making your music available to visual media, TV shows, um, commercials, online content, etc. can be extremely lucrative. I've been involved in sync licensing since the 90s when my track Spine Chiller was used in a British soap opera called EastEnders, which was an insane event, which saw my phone ringing for days on end because <laughs> it's like the biggest show in the UK. Um, and yeah, over the years, I've I sort of acquired my own... Um, sync licensing contacts and um, I have over a, I guess about 150 credits now on Hollywood film and TV um, I'd say the business goes um, in ebbs and flows um, there was a time where I was managing the sync for, for a number of other artists because there was just so much work out there especially for electronic artists and uh, one artist in particular who I've worked with for about 15 years now is a guy called Tim Bessamuska who's, who's a composer and a producer and one of the inventors of the cinematic electronic sound um, you might want to look him up top guy from Holland and he was my most successful artist he actually um, was able to give up his job at the time um, because of the amount of work we had coming in it's definitely worth artists getting involved in sync licensing but what I would say is as we're recording this in late 2022 I'm currently taking a short break from actively writing tracks for sync because the, the business is going through a time when there are where there are a lot of companies popping up online a lot of companies the market is very oversaturated and what's happening what's happening is um, all of these companies are taking music and they're selling it to the clients for as little as possible just so they can get the sale just so they can put the client's badge on their website. And that's not good for the artist. If if a major motion picture or a major TV network can buy your song on a buyout for $2.50 with no publishing, that's not good for anyone. And that's something that artists have to be weary of at the moment. So what would your suggestion be for somebody who is interested in the sync licensing thing? Where to begin? I would say research the companies that you're going to um, potentially contact. Look at their history. Look at some of the other artists that they're working with. Look at their work. If they mention buyouts uh, or blanket deals, beware. <laughs> That's what I would say. Most of the good sync licensing companies are the ones that are not very good at promoting themselves online. If you see an advert for them on YouTube, just never even consider contacting them. <laughs> Seriously, do yourself a favor. Do yourself a favor. I, I recently, um, well, I, I think this is a story that people will be interested in. Um, there used to be a company called Pump Audio, launched about 15 years ago by a British businessman in New York. And he started that business from scratch and they became a sync licensing powerhouse. I made friends with them, got in the door um, because someone was illegally channeling my 
New Vision Recordings catalogue to them and they were even giving them remixes that I'd done for major labels including uh, QB's Finest featuring Naz and the Sugar Babes in the UK and they were selling them through Pump Audio to TV shows and one day someone there said hold on a minute I don't think this guy is the, the content holder and they contacted me long story short I ended up working with them for about 10 years and uh, did a lot of work for them I think I started out doing the Oprah Winfrey show um I did most of the tracks for the Oprah Winfrey show, hip-hop instrumentals and stuff, you know, light-hearted EDM, many films, uh, lots of reality shows. One day they get brought by Getty Images and uh, and everything just, everything went out the window. Getty cut the uh, royalty rates to from 50% to 30%. And then they wanted to take. See, if you're a sync, if you're a sync artist, what happens is uh, someone uses your track in a show. You get a small upfront fee every time it's broadcast. You get a payment through Gemma, BMI, PRS, etc. Pump Audio decided they were going to keep all of those, and therefore sent shock shockwaves mm-hmm. through the industry. Um, that crashed the company because they could no longer get any content, and no one wanted to buy from them. Artists jumped ship. And so they sold it to a company called Epidemic Sound, who you've probably seen on YouTube offering great deals for artists. Unfortunately, what Epidemic Sound do is they keep almost everything, almost the entire licensing fee and 100% of your back-end payment, your Gemma slash BMI slash PRS. And that is the kind of deal that I um, you know, advise people to not get into because all you're doing is giving away your work and allowing someone to completely take advantage of you while they give you nothing. And unfortunately, that is the current state of the mid-range part of the sync industry at the moment. So if you're a new artist and you want to get into sync, you're going to have trouble unless you can find somebody who's you know offering a good deal. So, and while we're talking about things that should be ranked maybe higher on the awareness list uh, among producers, in your opinion, which are the aspects about releasing that are usually too much neglected by producers and artists? My answer would be to research the distribution. I know a lot of people use DistroKid, but it, it and, and similar companies, but, but there are better companies out there that treat artists um, as if they're part of a roster. I'm lucky enough to work with Cygnus Music in the UK because um, whereas DistroKid, I, I, they seem to be, you know, it works, it works for some people, but for some people I see using DistroKid, they, they pay out money, they don't get anything back, and then I see that they don't even have any control over their YouTube content ID rights, the tracks are unprotected they often they from time to time have uh, instances of other people uploading their music under their own name and I, i see companies like that as a kind of mismanagement like a misstep because when you sign up to one of those huge distributors you're just a number whereas if you can research a smaller boutique distributor who's placed within the music business and works you know with labels and djs and pr companies they treat you as part of a roster so like from my end i might not be at the top of the pyramid as far as artists go but i make a monthly wage from my uh content id and my streaming and that's because cygnus music have their system so well fine-tuned that nothing escapes we get paid for everything every month on the dot And um, and the, the tools they offer, you know, for, for an artist in terms of uh, revenue generation and creation are just unreal. Um, regularly looking for new for new avenues um, and, and 
and also getting into licensing as well. And you're not going to get that personal touch with a huge distributor. Now, I, I do appreciate that not everyone is going to be able to get on board with a, with a small boutique distributor, but it depends how seriously you take your music because obviously a company like Cygnus, they need to see a bit more from you. They want to see your branding. They want to see your image. They want to see you know dedication. They want to see a few more tracks. They want to see you pushing yourself to radio and blogs and stuff. And, and not everyone can do that. I appreciate that. Not everyone wants to do that. Um, but that, if I was an artist starting out today and I took myself seriously, that's the advice that I hope somebody would give me is try to avoid going with the big guy and find yourself good distribution. Very interesting advice. Thank you very much. Now, I think we are heading towards an hour of an interview, so we should come to an end. For, I mean, slowly, but steadily. <laughs> And of course, we have to talk about Mexico. Your artist bio says you were switching between studios in the UK and Mexico. Of course, I ask myself, why that? Do you speak Spanish? How did you come to Mexico? So many question marks. So many question marks. Well, being a typical Englishman, I, my language skills are pretty much zero other than English. So my Spanish is terrible. My four children, they, uh, I have four kids and their first language is Spanish. So they, they are both the Spanish and English, bless them. Long story short, many years ago, I took a holiday with some friends to Los Angeles and uh, we took a trip to Las Vegas for a few days where I randomly met my, my wife-to-be. And uh, after that holiday ensued a number of trips and adventures to Mexico. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we, we have lived in the UK on and off, um, but we're in Mexico at the moment. I guess from a family point of view, you know, it's better for the kids, you know, they're, so it's good from a family point of view. Um, but yeah, where we live is a strange place uh, in the city of Acuna on the border of uh, Del Rio, Texas. You've told me that this is the place where Robert Rodriguez's movie El Mariachi was filmed, right? That came a bit unexpected, I must say. <laughs> It's very strange to walk down the high street and, and see that you're in that, the high street where, you know, Danny Trejo was and all those guys. Antonio Banderas later on as well, um, for some, I think the sequel. But yeah, the, the guy who played the El Mariachi in the first movie, Carlos Gallardo, lives in this town. And he, he has a number of movie billboards featuring movies he was in that never came out that say coming soon. One of those has been up for 20 years. <laughs> Do you feel isolated? Yes, I'm very isolated here. So while I'm living here, I, you know, I just throw myself into my work um, because we're in the middle of nowhere, literally in the middle of nowhere. So it's great for the kids, you know, because they, they have a nice school and they have plenty of friends and they can cross into the US. But right now for me, I can't cross into the US because of the recent uh, diseases, shall we say, in the world. So that's all limited. So uh, I'm very much reduced to um, being house dad slash rock star. Nah, cool. <laughs> <laughs> into work, really. So yeah, it, it gives me plenty of time to work out here i get long working days that's that's the benefit of being here at the moment the downside is um you know the infrastructure in a country like mexico is is shaky so you know you can be without water or power some days but you know you deal with it you make the best of it <laughs> So you've already told about a bit about the plans you have for the future with uh, the Death Beats. There will something coming up in November, new music. Uh, is there anything else which should be mentioned here? Oh, well, I'm already working on the fourth uh, release for Death Ray Music, and that is going to be a collaboration with a singer from Italy, an old friend of mine called Sarah Cruz. And uh, we worked together for many years. Um, I used to run a label for her um, about 10 years ago, go called Glyph. 
Listen Music, which was run by her and a friend of hers called Clyde, a producer, Clyde Jones, who sadly passed away recently. And um, that was an EDM label. And uh, Sarah was the flagship artist. And we had a really good uh, response to that label. We had DJ support from Knife Party and Crystal Clear and some of the Pen- Pendulum, some of the biggest names, you know, in the EDM scene. Hold on, Pendulum is Knife Party. Sorry, I need to check my DJ names before I show off, don't I? Sorry. <laughs> yeah, so me and Sarah are doing another track together. We did a track on my Urban Sickness label years ago called Ready For Ya, which was a pretty popular D&B track with a nice pop vocal. I think that's one of my most popular tunes. That was actually retro synth D&B, but with a real driving vibe to it so uh, that was one of my first sort of um, attempts at dance floor dmb with vintage synths um and that particular track i, I did everything with native instruments massive which uh, is a synth i still love today um so yeah me and sarah have got this new track um i'm not sure what we're going to call it um but it's very uh it's very synth wave very epic and it's very dmb and the dmb mix switches to four four beats halfway through bang 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 it will knock you out all right sounds great so last but not least i'd like to ask you five quick questions with five short answers please i think you know it from episode one and brian was struggling quite a bit on this part so let's see how you perform here if you could keep only one synthesizer which one would it be and why oh boy it's got to be the jx 3p i just love it i love this I've got the boutique version and I love it, but there's nothing like programming the original GX3P. The layout uh, works in such a way that you can create sounds quickly and easily, original sounds. It's the original rave machine. Okay, number two. Which band or musical project has impressed you the most in the last 12 months? Well, I'd have to say that one of my favorite artists right now is Sub Focus, the drum and bass artist, because he is just making so much good music with a retro vibe that just works on the dance floor. It's just unreal. Um, yeah, my, my ear is to the ground whenever there's a Sub Focus tune out. Anyone who's into Synthwave should check out Sub Focus, even if they think they don't like drum and bass. Cool. What would you like your fans to associate with you and your work? I would like them to associate uh, non-conformity. I've always been told you don't fit into the drum and bass scene. You're always trying to do things you shouldn't do. You're always trying to put synths into your tunes. And the same with Synthwave. I would like people to think, shit, I like that tune, but why is there a drum and bass thing in there? Non-conformity, that's what I like. (laughs) Very nice. And what would you like your fans to associate a little less with you and your work? Well, that that is a difficult question, isn't it? Yeah, always the harder part. In the Poison Flow days, whenever we did a gig, the, the a promoter would come up to us and say, oh, you, it's really great. It reminds me of the, the Prodigy. It just sounds just like it, just like it. And I would say, no, inspired by it, but this is not the Prodigy. It's different, right? <laughs> As, as for today, I just I just hope that, yeah, people would see me as a little bit different in terms of uh, maybe back to the issue of non-conformity, that they would see that as something. Now, hold on. That doesn't quite answer the question, does it? Last question. What do you think will be the most important change in the music scene in the next five years? Gosh, that that is a difficult question, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I hope that there's a reformation in regards to streaming revenues i don't think artists are paid enough 
I think they've paid a pittance. And, Is it and a I wish that, or do you think it will really come true? Well, I tell you what, I'd have to be honest and say I think it's a wish. But with with publishing revenues being harder to achieve and licensing revenues being harder to achieve, you know, I I think it would be a, a, a dull world if people stopped making music because they couldn't get the basic income that they needed, you know. Um, and I mean, I'm not saying that people should make music for money, but I, I don't think these companies like Spotify should literally just be hoovering up cash in return for everybody else's music and giving nothing back. I think there does need to be some kind of reform. It's probably the same for digital downloads as well. Um, and something that I do think is going to happen, um, which a lot of people are not going to want to hear, is that I think eventually um, distributors, all distributors are going to start, um, what's the word, quality control. Whereas, you know, I can upload white noise with an yeah. NFL on it right now. Um, and so Amazon Music can just be filled of crap. Um, one thing that uh, Beatport did about 15 years ago was they, uh, as they put it, they started to prune the tree of crap um, so that the store was only known for the you know the best quality stuff. I think that's coming. So anyone half decent is still going to get through. But I think because uh, from time to time people do send me music and I just think that is you know. That shouldn't be out there. It's not ready to be released. It's just not up to scratch. And um, it's all, it adds to the noise, doesn't it, at the end of the day? So thank you very much, Gary. It was a very cool interview, I think. It was a bit jumpy, <laughs> but it was very vivid. And uh, yeah, thank you so much. I mean, very valuable information in there. Also a little bit behind the uh, curtains, you know, of the music industry, which is something I think many people listening right now will really dig. Yep, I, it's been a pleasure talking today, Rena, And I, I do hope that people find it interesting and useful. So that was it. Time flies. The interview with Gary J. Robinson from The Death Beats. I hope you were able to get something out of it for you. At the very end, please allow me a time tiny little bit of self-promotion. Because as you might know, I'm also into synth music myself with my own music released under the moniker of UAP. So if you've got three minutes left, I'd be glad to show you one of two new singles that I have currently on Spotify. This one's called Believer. I'm Rainer, also known as UAP, and if you enjoyed this, let's meet again in November for the next episode of Let's Talk Synth seriously and who knows who will be my next guest hmm. so now enjoy believer coming your way now